Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. Erin Cola Marina Lugworms, also known as Sandworms. Well, what's that got to do with sport? Well, a lot, actually, because it's a new kind of doping that may or may not be part of the future of doping. (laughs) We hope not. We hope not too much. We hope not too much. But it is a story that's uh, hit the uh, news in the last couple of weeks, and we're going to get into some of the news in the science of sport over the next half an hour and then have a little bit of a focus, a little bit on a recent study that came out about the Wim Hof method. Of course, the 64-year-old Dutch man they call the Iceman who has uh, changed um, the way that people view cold water as a very um, good way of staying healthy and fit and improving your mood. Well, some studies have come out now um, showing whether that is true and not true, and we'll get into that a little bit later on. But uh, let's kick off with that news. Um, This is actually a story that appeared on Cycling News, where the Tour de France rider, one of the insiders in the team said a Tour de France rider had uh, requested um, the use of this thing called marine worm hemoglobin. And uh, I mean, Ross, maybe you can explain a bit better than I can, but it's basically like a marine worm that is extremely good at um, uh, transporting oxygen. And now they're using the blood from this marine worm to essentially infuse into the body. So worm blood (laughs) is the new thing, or is it? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I saw this as well. And like some of you, Renato Caroni got in touch on Patreon and said, when I first read this, I thought it was a late April Fool, but unfortunately, it was pretty serious stuff. I wonder who that famous cyclist was. Mm. And I saw it also, and I thought, oh, man, you know, it's quite disheartening because for every surprise we hear, there's probably five we didn't. Yeah. So if lugworm hemoglobin is being used, what else is being used that you wouldn't think to yes. inject, infuse, ingest, whatever? So, mm. I mean, look, I don't know much about this thing. I'm nobody's idea of a marine biologist or any kind of... um experts on anything other than well not knowledgeable about anything other than sports and humans but i gather it's probably one of those things where it lives in a low oxygen environment and it has Mm. to have evolved a really efficient way to get what limited oxygen is around and hey presto you've got hemoglobin they say interestingly in this article i read and again show notes will have it uh it's a universal blood substitute that can transport 40 times more oxygen than human hemoglobin 250 times smaller than other red blood cells, which helps circulation. So apparently it gets around better and it carries more oxygen. I don't know about 40 times though, because as we Mm. sit here at sea level quietly, even when we're exercising, our saturation is pretty close to maximized. And I'm not sure what 40 times refers to. Like, I don't know what the reference point is, Mm. but let's just assume it's better. It's a better version of the same thing. And then the other problem- Well, it's apparently smaller. 
Yeah. So in other words, it can get around the system and is apparently 250 times smaller than other red blood cells, which helps circulation. I didn't think the size of a red blood cell limited its ability to do Mm. its job, though. Like, that's the thing. So it might be just a stat that sounds good, but doesn't Mm. really have any real meaning. So I don't know the true benefit from it Mm. relative to what we have. But I will say, even if it was the same as ours, it would be beneficial, Mm. right? Because there's more of it. Mm. It's cars on the road. We've often spoken about hemoglobin as a taxi for oxygen. And more taxis means more people transported. Your capacity goes up. And if there's any limitation to exercise because of oxygen delivery, which there is, Mm. then more cars, more oxygen delivery means that limitation or that ceiling is, is lifted. So even if it performed the same as human hemoglobin, it would still be beneficial. There's a couple of things that make it kind of almost a, I mean, I hate to say a wonder drug because this is not a good story here, but it says on this article on Cycling News, it is compatible with all blood groups. It doesn't increase blood hematocrit, so in other words, it can't be detected and cause high blood pressure like bovine or human hemoglobin. And it can be stored at room temperature and freeze dried, which makes it even easier to transport. So you can (laughs) slip one in your back pocket halfway through a ride. I don't know. But um, I mean, it, it seems like one of those things where... Is it used in a medical way that we know of? Or is this just kind of like, oh, okay, there's a worm that can transport hemoglobin really well. Let's see if we can harvest these worms. Or is it, are there other uses for it? Yeah, so, you know, the article interviews the guy who basically founded it and developed Mm. it. and Dr. Zal. Yeah, Dr. Zal. And so it causes the hemo to life additive to help organ transplantation has recently been approved for medical use in Europe, making it readily available. Mm. So the way it's described, the, the... the request to use it in sport preceded its licensing. So there is, there is a medical use. But there is a medical use. And mm-hmm. so he discovered it in 2007. And it says, here, I'm quoting now, quickly realized his products could become a target for blood dopers, even if they were created to save lives. I understood very early on that it could be diverted, Dr. Zastel's L'Equipe. We had several direct requests from athletes or gyms who wanted to know how to obtain the substance. <laughs> also <laughs> learned of its possible administration to racehorses. And then a well-known cyclist contacted him in July 2020. So that would have been in the COVID lockdown. That, that was the tour that eventually happened in October that year. It was the, it was the Roglic-Pagacha um, one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so, so then he tells the French police. So he, he obviously is a guy who has come out and said, look, I made this thing for medical use and I'm just letting you know that mm. this thing's out there. Wouldn't be the first time. I remember back in the day, and I think it was a drug called Cera, C-E-R-A. It was also a, synth- it was a synthetic version of EPO, which was being used. And the authorities were onto it before, well, at the same time as the athletes and were working with the manufacturer to develop a test for it. It would specifically, because if I remember correctly, they modified it by adding a little glycosyl unit to it. And the authorities said, all right, well, that's how you're going to make it work better. Mm-hmm. We're going to be sneaky and test for that thing. And so they were able to test for it and surprise a lot of athletes. And so theoretically, knowing that it's there, they can maybe look to try and figure out to test for it. But that's difficult. And the, I was going to say, the, I challenge, mean, yeah. the World Anti-Doping Agency has insisted in that article that no cases of lugworm hemoglobin have been detected, but are concerned about its future. But I mean, as I say, unless they've got a test, it sounds like it's fairly in, in, undetectable at this stage. Yeah, because earlier on in that same piece, right, where, where was it that they talk about the very short half-life? And so that, what that means basically from a pharmacological point of view is that it's only really there for a short time. Mm. So unlike other blood doping methods where you're using them to give you a benefit that lasts days, if not weeks, 
this seems to be like acute, you know, here, take this for the next four to eight hours, you will have more hemoglobin. And then it seems like it's gone, or at least gone enough that finding it would be real difficult. And so they mentioned somewhere in that article, I couldn't find the paragraph, but that you, unless you tested for it literally like off the bike, you probably won't find any, any more of it. But the athletes had the benefit in the race. And also, I suppose the concern there would be the biological passport. Was it our last show that we discussed that? It might have been in context of yeah. Noah Geruto. Remember, the biological passport is looking for changes in blood over time because of illegal practice, whether mm -hmm. it's EPO, blood removal, blood reinfusion. Those changes are the consequence of how the body adapts to changes, like withdraw the blood, something will change in the body. Put the blood back in, something changes. Put EPO in, something changes. If this thing is acute and so short-lived, whether or not the signal to change the blood comes strongly enough is questionable. So mm. it could be that it flies under the radar of the passport. It's not literally directly detectable either. And so you get all the benefit without the risk. But if, if so there's no detectable increase in hematocrit, for instance, then surely then there's no benefit. I mean, if, if it's only got a short lifespan and what they're saying there is not detectable in hematocrit. Well, it's detectable while it's there. While it's there, yes. In the stage race. But in that in article, the race. they're saying it's not detectable in terms of increased hematocrit. So if there's no increased hematocrit, then so, is it effective? Well, remember, hematocrit is the percentage of the blood that is occupied by red cells. And this mm. isn't adding to that. Correct. So it's under that radar. It's not detectable as an increase in the body's hemoglobin, but it is doing the job of hemoglobin right. for that six hours. So mm. I'm standing on the start line. I've had my <laughs> shot. I don't even know how it's administered. I assume it's an injection. Yeah. Um, you've had your shot at the, at the hotel an hour or two before the, the race starts. I know that by the time you get to the finish, it's not there anymore. Mm. But while you're on the bike, you're going to benefit. Mm. So this is a potential problem. And I would, again... It's disheartening because if, if it's happening with lugworm hemoglobin and we know about it because a doctor or an innovator in good conscience has come forward, are there five others who haven't about their particular exotic <laughs> drug substitute? That's the, that's the problem, you know. Like, but, mm. but to the point, synthetic hemoglobin is, is available. Mm -hmm. It's just this one seems to be mm. conveniently available and quite good at doing what it's meant to do. Hmm. Mm. Maybe you administer it via rectal suppository or something like that. <laughs> no. But it's interesting to wonder whether, you know, we've spoken here whether this whether this the, the, the improvements we've seen, not just in cycling, but in running performances, endurance athletes, has some re some basis. Okay. Mm. We we talk a lot about the shoes for runners and so on. Talk a lot about aerodynamics and bikes for cyclists. But all the while in the back of your mind there's this there's this in the shadows, there's this possibility that something new is out there. Mm -hmm. It's yes, there's still going to be cortisone, which is an amazing drug for performance. I mean, yeah, my experience on cortisone was, I was incredible. Gonna say, just just a couple of tablets um, <laughs> when you've got a cortisone course, you fly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so yeah, okay. There's that. There's EPO microdosing. There's blood subtle blood transfusions. There's asthma meds in combination with certain things. We know all that stuff. In the, well, I wouldn't even call that grey. That's that's not grey. That's black or white. But mm. it's subtle. But meanwhile, you know, you're constantly watching sport, wondering is there something major happening? And then this comes out and you go, ooh, is this it? So it's just, yeah, disheartening a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Now, onto something completely different. And uh, we don't cover Formula One and motorsports uh, that much on our podcast because we probably don't know enough about it. But um, there was a, 
a very interesting interview that Max Verstappen did after winning the Las Vegas uh, Grand Prix over the weekend, which was uh, sort of one of those hyped up. There was the sphere they were riding around. There was lights. It was uh, you know a real typical American hype around it. And Max Verstappen actually in this interview that he did um, on Formula One TV talked about the fact that actually the, the real soul of Formula One has been taken away by these sort of antics um, and this sort of sort of entertainment. And he's saying a lot of the guys are just going there to have a few drinks with mates and not really appreciating the uh, event of Formula One and understanding the passion of it. And he was saying that for him, when he grew up, the passion of the sport and, and, and knowledge of the sport was critical. I thought it was a pretty good interview. So let's, uh, let's listen to it and we can uh, see what we think. I feel like, of course, a kind of show element is important, but I like emotion. And for me, when I was a little kid, it was um, about the emotion of the sport, what I fell in love with, and not the show of the sport around it, because that's, I think as a real racer, that shouldn't really matter. I mean, a car, first of all, a racing car, Formula One car, anyway, on a street circuit, I think doesn't really come alive. It's not that exciting. I think it's more about just the proper racetracks. You know, when you go to Spa, Monza, you know, these kind of places, they, they have a lot of emotion and passion. And for me, you know, seeing the fans there is incredible. And for us as well, when I jump in the car there, I'm fired up and I love driving around these kind of places. And of course, I understand that fans, they need maybe something to do as well around a, a track. But I think it's more important that you actually make them understand what we do as a sport, because most of them just come to have a party, drink, see a DJ play or a performance act. I mean, I can do that uh, all over the world. I can go to Ibiza and get completely shit-faced and, you know, have a good time. But that's what happens, you know, and actually people, they come and they, they become fan of what? They become, they want to see maybe their favorite artist and uh, have a few drinks with their mates and then go out and have a crazy night out. But they don't actually understand what we are doing and what we are putting on the line, you know, to perform. And I think if you would actually invest more time into the, the actual sport, what we're actually trying to achieve here, you know, to, as a little kid, we grew up wanting to be a world champion. If I think the sport would, put more focus onto these kind of things and also explain more what the team is doing, you know, throughout the season, what they are achieving, what they are working for. These kind of things I find way more important to look at than just having all these random shows all over the place. For me, yeah, it's not what I'm very passionate about and I like passion and emotion with these kind of places, which I love Vegas, but not to drive in a funker. I love to go out, have a few drinks, throw everything on red or whatever, you know, to be a bit crazy, have a nice food. But like I said, emotion, passion, it's not there compared to some old school tracks. Yeah, so interesting. I mean, mm. in a way, when he talks about passion, he talks about street circuits not being particularly attractive in terms of racing and the circuits like Spa and those sort of events are much more focused on the racing. But then Monte Carlo has obviously got the most passion of all, and that is a street circuit. But your thoughts, I mean, I, I yeah. tend to agree with him, to be honest. So I think there's a few things there. Just by way of context, that was an interview, I think it was before the race, and it's I saw it on Twitter, X, whatever, by Dan's DRS and a guy that handles at F1 guy Dan. Mm. So you can follow him if you're into this and you, you want to find more content like it. 
and it caught my eye and attention because we've not we, we've discussed similar questions around how sport attracts fans new fans and engages its loyal base and we've discussed that in the context of rugby after the world cup and marathon running i think recently and then i saw this and i thought okay these guys are dealing with the same issues and there's probably a broader context i don't know not being an avid follower where the circuit is definitely trying to take these races to exotic A-list locations like Vegas, Singapore, etc. A lot in the Middle East now as well because money talks, money's a magnet. Yeah. Um, and like in Vegas, there was a controversy where one of the Ferraris went over a manhole cover and ripped it right up and it damaged the underside of the car. They were fuming. Everyone was just mass costly. They had to stop the qualifying session and no one got their money back. There's a lawsuit. So there's probably a little bit bubbling underneath Verstappen's comments. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that it seems to me if I had to distill it, it's sport doesn't really know whether it should remain true to its historical fan base or whether it should innovate to potentially the point of gimmick to attract new people. That seems to me the fundamental tension. Yeah. It's the same with marathon running, right? And it's the same with rugby. We saw how will you attract new people, the casual fan, to the sport do you position it as entertainment and i saw something this week where one of the senior guys on the world rugby board spoke about this and he said rugby remember is entertainment we're competing against entertainment products now yeah and if we don't make sure we are entertaining we will not keep and gain new fans and i think that the mistake that's being made is that sports this is a marketing thing more now so i'm in my marketing days is more, is making the mistake of like f- chasing um, almost like growth at the expense of consolidating loyalty. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I don't know. What do you think? Like, is well, I think Formula One. I mean, my father's a big fan of Formula One, and I've grown up watching it. And I tend to be a traditionalist. I understand the passion of it, but I think the circuits, in terms of the Formula One circuit throughout the year, has the Spa and Monte Carlo and the traditional European circuits that appeal to the more core um, spectator and fan. And I think by expanding their role into places like Las Vegas, I mean, I watched Las Vegas purely because I wanted to see what the spectacle looked Mm. like, particularly going around the sphere. And it was quite spectacular. From a racing perspective, um, there were 300,000 fans in Las Vegas, which is absolutely incredible, although you don't see any of them in the TV coverage because they're kind of up in the bleachers. But... I think, yeah, I think you've got to expand. I don't think that Formula One's necessarily lost its soul because of Las Vegas. Hmm. Um, and I, and I, so I, so, I, so I, I guess I partly agree with what he's saying, but I also think the sport wants to attract, particularly the American market. Yeah, I mean, look at the golf. Remember golf with Live Golf? That's the same story, well, yeah. right? Where you get yeah, like, but it's changed golf, isn't it? And then, did you see? I haven't really listened to much. I listened to one podcast with Brunel and Spencer Martin talking about that. That plan to re and, and actually there's more on the cycling, but the there was a there was a group that was looking at setting up a breakaway cycling league, and it yeah. was also going to be bankrolled potentially or funded, supported by Saudi Arabia, and so that's like every sport now I think is dealing with that. Mm. I know football is in England, Saudi owned clubs and so on, which starts to get into some other areas as well. But I think it does make the point that all sport is following the money i mean there's no there's no doubt they're going where they go because of the money for sure and then they position it as innovative new audiences new markets mm-hmm. and so on but the drivers don't fancy it the other thing that's happening is and you're in the magazine world and online now media world let's say mm. 
and you're trying to cater to two or three different generations of customer and you go, you know what the new customer wants? The new customer is the TikTok generation. And it's such a lazy trope, actually. Yeah. They watch TikToks. Their attention span is incredibly short. The content we deliver to them has to be completely different to what we deliver to the 65-year-old who's done 41 marathons in his life and doesn't want to do anything different. Yeah. And so there's this... And, and I, I don't know that sports figured that new market out yet either. Listen to a fascinating podcast this week. It was recorded a couple back called Blood and Mud Rugby. The host, a guy called Lee Calvert, and he interviews someone called Sam Lana, who did a tweet thread on how rugby needs to be more like uh, Strictly Come Dancing. And he talks about the Strictly Come Dancing concept, you know, where they do these tech, because what are actually quite technical dances. Mm-hmm. And I know nothing about dancing, but there's probably like way more technical stuff going into the dance than I'm even capable of appreciating. But lots of people like me love it. So you don't need the technical to get the enjoyment, whereas rugby always wants to dwell on its own complexities and, yeah. it's, and it compromises itself. And he ta- anyway, Sam Lana talks about this concept of the, the young generation and what they want and how sport's probably missing them. Is Verstappen right? Like he grew up loving racing. He loves the traditional circuits. Mm. Is the guy who's sitting in that chair in 15 years time, who's 11 years old now, is he the same? Or is he a new type of driver who grew up on esports? I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Exactly. And to some extent, watching some of the footage from the cars, it almost feels like they're participating in esports because of the yeah, way that it looks you, on the track. It's quite extraordinary. It'd be hard to tell the difference between yeah, a cockpit view and a computer Except for the game. G-forces you're mm. going to feel in real life out there. Yeah. And yeah. so esports, by the way, getting to the Olympics, there's no doubt that it's going to happen. Yeah, I, I hope it doesn't. <laughs> no, it's just you may, as well, you may as well accept Maybe it. Maybe I'm it's too happening. old. It's happening, right? Yeah. Because that's where it's going. And meanwhile, sports like track cycling mm. is under major threat. Yeah. Because it's dominated by the same three or four countries, mm. England, France, the Netherlands, and sometimes Jap- Japanese countries, mm. China as well on the women's side, maybe. No one else really wants to go. They're saying, well, we do esports. Cricket's coming because it opens up a market through India that would never have, that's that's been added right no that the, yeah, LA, yeah, yeah yeah so well, that kind of makes sense purely so, because of the just the enormity of the fan base in india yeah. particularly so yeah. it's the search for relevance and i remember mm. learning in marketing that your your number one priority should be to retain your existing customer before you try and grow in yeah. that strategy sports seems to be quite happy to <laughs> abandon its existing company in the name of a customer in the name of growth well it's 80 20 principle i always think where you could you got to appeal to 80 percent of your audience 80 percent of the time but 20 percent of the time you want to appeal to a, a bigger audience and a growing audience and i think it's a a tenant of magazines and media that look at that as a sort of the strategy um, and I think it probably applies to sport as well. You've got to move in the right direction, but you've got to look mm. after 80% of your fan base because they are your most loyal supporters. I'll tell you the one thing you said, though, on that is if you don't try and help people understand what they're actually yeah. doing, and if it does become, to quote him, just about going and getting shit-faced at the track or whatever it is, mm. you, you have a major problem. Sevens Rugby made that mistake in a lot of venues. In Wellington, for instance, by the time the final match was played, no one was in the stand because literally, and I was there because I was with the team, like 60% of the ticket holders had passed out on the concourse because they were so drunk. Because all they do at sevens is they show up at 9.30 in the morning and they drink. Yep. And and Twickenham ended up not selling alcohol for a couple of years because a couple of drunk fans tried to abseil down the side of the stadium and guess how it ended, like tragically. Oh, really? Okay. So Sevens made the mistake of compromising its core product in the name of 
party. Mm. And there's a there's a balance there. And I think what Verstappen said about that and running needs to do the same thing. Track and field needs to do the same thing. Cycling, I think, lends itself to technical followers. They like mm. the, the geekdom of power and numbers and technical talk. But it's the same thing we mentioned last week is, okay, a lot of people watch it for the scenery. But if you neglect the fundamentals of what's actually happening and what those guys and women are actually doing, then you can't possibly grow because they will replace your party with another one. That's not sustainable. Rugby needs to do more to help people enjoy and appreciate its complexity, not dilute it and simplify it to the point that it turns people off. So that, but for sure, he's 100% right. And, and, and I think it points to a good strategy around the fact that when you're, they always say the more you can educate your public about the sport itself, the more they will enjoy it. So, you know, if you take somebody who's never watched the Tour de France, they understand what's happening during a stage of the Tour de France and they get behind it. I've seen lots of people who have no knowledge of cycling or how it works taking them and showing them how it works in real life makes their enjoyment of it and mm. they're actually enjoying the core sport itself which is a critical part of it so yeah exactly and just speaking of we got some lovely messages like i know in october we were quite heavy on the rugby while i was over there in france and we had some great messages on patreon talking about the talking about the coverage we did and for instance warren charles sent a message saying love your uh, podcast learned a lot about the rugby these past weeks and can appreciate the sport so much more now thanks to john dobson thanks yeah. to so like I, that's that's our tiny tiny contribution to yeah. the same thing but you're right like for me as well if i know a little bit more about what i'm watching i'm enjoying it exponentially more 100 100 mm. and now just uh, just as a segue we touched very briefly on the uh, world cup cricket we didn't do a lot on the world cup cricket this year um england of course um, sorry not um england winning australia winning that mm. um i was really rooting for india purely because i thought india were the most sort of consistent team but uh, australia ended up winning it and i think england, it, india had a bad day in the final but it looked like watching a hundred thousand people backing every single time india hit the ball into the boundary was something spectacular i mean that was i've been very fortunate yeah, used to cover it i did and, yeah. I, and i've covered uh, back when in my 20s i went and traveled to india a couple, a couple of occasions and i remember watching South Africa against India at Eden Gardens with 100,000 people in the stadium. And not 100,000 quiet fans. They are loud, they are passionate, and they believe that what they're seeing out there, particularly with the players and the Indian players, they're almost godlike. And I just, if those of you that watch the World Cup cricket final, being there, you would have seen it on TV, but I tell you what, being there and understanding the noise and the passion that goes mm. behind Indian cricket is something quite special. So, Someone once said to me that every boundary and wicket is like an earthquake. Yeah. It feels like if you're sitting yeah. in a stadium, and <laughs> except when, okay, that's a boundary or a wicket to India. Yes, then it's the opposite, dead quiet. The opposite yeah. must be like what a black hole feels like as it forms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, amazing. <laughs> well, when they, well, when, probably when, that's quite ca- quite so, cataclysmic, but but it's whatever, the, mm, you know what I'm getting at. Yeah, I mean, yeah. every time Australia hit a boundary, it was 100,000 people doing nothing mm. and it was dead quiet. And yeah. every time there was even just through a remotest <laughs> bit of... So it was, it was sad in respect because you always love to see a host nation, particularly a host nation that has got a spectator crew that is extremely passionate. And uh, I think that's why I wanted India to win it. But if, well done, uh, Australia, I if guess. That was, if that was South Africa, in the final having won nine ten and like let's be honest india did not look at any stage in this tournament like anyone was even close to challenging no, them. maybe amazing. maybe for about five overs in the semi-final against new zealand you thought hmm, this could be interesting but then very quickly that was snuffed out yeah so if a team as dominant as that got to a final and then got beaten if that team was south africa we'd say chokers yeah so we're we saying yeah. that 
<laughs> no, we're not saying that because I don't think India were chokers. I just think they had a bad day. They, in fact, I think to a large extent, and I hate to make excuses for them, but I think the wicket um, when Australia batting got better. Normally what you'd expect if you bat first, that it's much harder for the second team, particularly under the lights. But I think conditions got better for batting for Australia and they got a bit lucky with that. But in a way, in a, in a way that's just that's the game of cricket. You need a bit of luck. Yeah, I, I had a when I was in London and I was coming back from the... Uh, from the World Cup drive to the airport was driven by a Pakistani cab driver. So what do you think of the World Cup? It's pointless watching. India's going to win it. They're rigging every wicket in favor of India. So, that, okay, this is from Pakistan, were. right? Mm. And they were. And there was a degree of irony in the fact that in the end, they probably got undone mm. by the by the environmental conditions yeah. because because everything to that point was set up for them yeah. on a plate. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah the and for those, was, I mean, for those of you that watch cricket, I mean, the effect of things like humidity... And in this that, case, it's the dew, right? The dew, but yeah, also the humidity yeah. of the ball. When you've got a when you've got a very humid situation, particularly at night, the ball swings more. Um, it's not just the way it comes off the wicket or bounces or flies through all that sort of thing. And actually, that wicket was a slow, difficult wicket when when, when India were batting. In other words, they couldn't really get the ball away, whereas the ball was coming onto the bat much better with Australia. So yeah. But anyway, <laughs> I mean, you're right. Cricket, at, at least. I think one thing I love about cricket to some extent is there there are variables that are that you cannot control. If it was all within control, it would be a fairly boring game. And there are outside forces like weather that can make a huge difference on the game. And mm. I, I think I, saw, I quite like that. I saw a few people after that final last word on that saying that da- cricket matches should not be played such that the conditions can vary enough to change the outcome. In in this case, the guy's saying basically in day-night games are a joke because the conditions vary so much between day and night. You yeah. should play all games to be day games. And that seems to me mm. to be, A, like a knee-jerk reaction to something you don't like, mm. and B, actually taking away like part of the jeopardy in the game. Yeah, And I know that that jeopardy exists in the coin toss. And ideally, you don't want the jeopardy and the uncertainty to come from not cricket skill. But that's how it is, and mm. I think it's I think it's just fine. Just get mm. carry on, you know. Yeah, yeah. We could talk a bit about it, but anyway, let's move on to a couple of other news items. So, football injuries. Uh, one of our patrons, Gareth, talking a little bit about the football injury story. What's what's the story there? Yeah, as always, good value, Gareth Davies. Thanks for that. I owe you an yeah. email, and I will send you that. He's been in touch on DMs about. He's something. almost as good as the real Gareth Davies. Much, much better, much, much more diverse fact, than, exactly. than the real one exactly. in terms of his sporting knowledge. So, Thanks, Gareth. Actually, I'm going to ma- I'm, I'll mail you b- before the weekend, Gareth. Anyway, this <laughs> this is a link he sent again. It'll be in the show notes talking about um, Premier League football injuries and why are they at a new high. And they cite a website run by a data analyst called Ben Dunnery, founder of Premier Injuries. And it talks about a 15% increase compared to the past four campaigns at the same stage. And got some stats in here that in isolation, be honest, don't mean much. You know, like, so Aston Villa have had 10 injuries. Brighton have had 10 injuries. Crystal Palace, 13. I mean, okay, I want to know how many games they've played, et cetera, et cetera. (laughs) So that's kind of just numbers. But the concept that he raises is whether elite athletes are just playing too much. Is it training wrongly for the game? You know, we know, for instance, in rugby, which I revert to only because I know it, that 80% of a player's load is in training and only 20% is in matches. Mm -hmm. Yet all the focus is always on, not all, but often the focus is on the match, the match, the match. But hang on a moment, maybe we can intervene at the level of the training to change things. So that's an eternal question is, are these teams getting injuries because they just train too much and then try and play on a heavy training load? Do they not train enough and then are unprepared to play on too light a training road? 
Or is there no amount of training that will prevent injury because you're just playing too much? So there's a questions football has to answer just like rugby does. I'll put that in the notes. And it is definitely an interesting one to discuss in future is player welfare and playing time. Because I, I guess the question that pops up there is whether these are chronic overuse injuries mm. or whether there are acute injuries happening because of a, a, a tackling that's happening maybe more aggressively than in the past or are they... Because if it's acute, yeah. if, sorry, if so, it's a chronic injuries, then you could then blame training Exactly. Games. And so the, generally there's three types. There's acute, as in you kicked me and as a consequence I'm now injured thanks to you. Like no, nothing training related is going to change that. Then there's acute... So that's, acute. <laughs> that's acute, acute. Acute impact or traumatic, whatever you want to call it. Then chronic is just wear and tear. Mm. Today it's a three out of 10. Next week it's a five. The week after that it's a six. And then suddenly it's a, it's a bad one. And then you get acute on chronic, which is where your chronic, it's something underlying, but like subclinical. I wasn't really aware of it. And then suddenly it goes. And often muscle injuries are in that category. They look like they're acute, but they're actually chronic. Because it's like it's like going bankrupt. You go slowly, then all at once. Same same as getting injured sometimes. I'm fine, and then all of a sudden I'm injured. But actually, that injury was coming. And so lots of times ACL injuries, they think, are like that, where actually it's just muscle fatigue. So there's a chronic load that predisposes you to an acute injury. And it's not necessarily that... Because you might, you might well apply the same force in a tackle or an impact, and the player's not injured versus injured. And that difference is how that player was prepared and in that moment capable of receiving that kinetic energy transfer. Make sense? Right. Yeah. So that's an interesting one. But there is there is a stat here in this article, the type of injury, the 196 documented, 53 are hamstring injuries. Now that is that has always been thought to be the classic canary in the coal mine for chronic load management issues when your hamstrings because then what happens is so the that's player, too much play. Too much training potentially too much fatigue could be in the gym too much load through the hamstrings those muscles and the neuromuscular system is then fatigued and that means different things it's a loaded word but then i go out and play a game and all of a sudden i got accelerate and decelerate and the hamstring just isn't rested and recovered and prepared for the match demand so you see an acute match injury that is really the consequence of something that's happened for three four weeks leading up to it and also i guess that uh, <laughs> Given the uh, soccer player's ability to create histrionics on the field, I, I would always question <laughs> what defines that injury. I mean, well, <laughs> is an injury a light bump or is an injury, in other words, could injuries be a case of overreporting? So there are, it could be, and it's an actually a really important question in injury surveillance research. And there are now position statements that define an injury and they mm. differ. There, there, there are different definitions depending on which context you do it in. So, for instance, in the community game, like let's say community rugby or football, an injury is defined more severely than in the in the professional game. So in the professional game, rugby, for instance, and football uses the same definitions, is anything that causes a player to have to miss training for 24 hours or more. Okay. So I cannot train for a day. I'm injured. Sometimes you'll see injuries defined as medical attention. And when you do that, your injury rate is three times higher because for every injury that causes you to miss a day, there are two others where you just have to see someone because it's hurting. It could be a bump <laughs> or your you legs fall off. You walk it off and then you get on with it. You know, it's mm. not really an injury. In the community game, because they don't train every day, it's hard to monitor. Did you miss a day of training? Well, I don't know. I wasn't meant to train for three days anyway because I only play once a week. Mm. So in the community game, often they define an injury as, as missing a week's worth of play. 
And so okay. if you ever see this as a public health service or practical tip, so if you see an injury paper, you have to always look at how they defined it because a medical attentory produces a much higher rate of injury than a one day time loss and a seven day time loss produces a lower one even okay. still. Hmm. So there is a definition of yeah, it. Yeah, there is a definition now. So when they roll over on the field, when they've been injury. lightly tapped on the ankle, that's not an injury. That's not an It's only in, <laughs> and, and this is where this this website, Premier Injuries, I assume he's got some source into the clubs because mm. leaving a player can leave the field substituted and not be injured. Substituted because of an injury, but mm. not be injured. But not be injured. By definition. Yeah, it could just yeah. have a lamey on the leg. Exactly. And yeah. that's going to recover. And by Saturday night, that player says, actually, you know what? I'm good to go. Sunday morning is normal. Yeah. So yeah. so leaving the field is not necessarily an injury. It could be if you defined it like that. And I don't know how these are defined. Yeah. yeah. But that's an important point. And yeah. it does confound comparisons, mm-hmm. you know, like between sports where one sport defines it as medical attention and another one defines it as one day off and you say oh ours is worse than yours well yeah mm. threshold was lower because I, I guess what I'm doing is I'm questioning the fact that these these there's so many variables when it comes to these sort of stats that it's uh, difficult to look at causality and yeah. whether they actually and that's whether why, there's a problem or not that's why injury research is so hard no. like it's mm. and we struggle with this all the time like even for concussions which you'd think are straight mm. up head knock it's acute but actually even a concussion there's some evidence that suggests that with fatigue you're more predisposed to concussion so the load you apply in the 60 minutes let alone the six days before the actual inciting event could have been the contributor mm, mm. and to try and figure that out the age of the player could be a difference if a player who there's no doubt by the way that if you if you've played more matches your risk of injury begins to rise i think i saw in the nfl for instance every game you play increases your risk of a concussion and any other injury by a certain amount for the next game it's not so it's not an, it's not just a yeah well obviously your risk goes up but literally there's a there's a cumulative addition to injury risk over time so yeah. all that stuff makes a difference and it's super difficult if not impossible to measure it all mm. well that's a, that's a nice segue because um an interesting and we have talked about this in the pod in previous ones about the fact that rugby has now brought in mouth guards which mm. have got accelerometers in them and you can now look at head impacts um so uh, you were telling us just before we went on air that the first games were being played now with these mouth guards well yeah. What's, what's been the results? And you, uh, you listeners got the world exclusive to that yeah, announcement. That's I right. Think, I think I might have jumped the gun and actually announced. We 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 discussed the use of the mouth guards before the before the before it was announced. Yes, my yeah. bad. Uh, or, or either that, or like literally within an hour of it. And yeah, the first ever tournament uh, happened in October, November, um, where where it was the women's XV. So it was a tournament consisting of 18 teams, but playing in three locations. There was WXV1 for the top six teams. That was in New Zealand. WXV2 was for teams ranked 7th to 12th. That was here in Cape Town, actually. Mm-hmm. And then WXV3 was in Dubai for teams ranked 13 to 18. And literally the first, the first ever case of a player being removed for a head injury screen as a consequence of a mouth guard happened here in Cape Town to an Italian player in, in that tournament. And then we had another 26 matches after that. And yeah, overall, it was really successful. We were very happy with the way that it went. The compliance by the teams was very good. A couple of medical exemptions where players couldn't wear it because of braces, for instance. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. But for the most part, teams wore them. Players wore them. They seemed sure. happy with them. The feedback was positive. Mm-hmm. And we got really good data. And I think conceptually it worked well. So 
The idea was, and I can't stress this enough, it was never to diagnose a concussion based on a mouth guard measurement. Never going to do that. I think in time we'll get better at it, mm. but it's never going to be diagnostic. What we were saying is that if we can take those impacts that are significant and potentially meaningful, let's use the mouth guard to almost as an extra pair of eyes, pick them up and put that player in front of the doctor just so that they can do a screen, be aware that this player is now five minutes ago had a head impact that would register in the top 0.2% of all head impacts in the game. Worth looking at you. And yeah, you might pass the screen, you might go back on the field, you might be checked two hours later, two days later, and everything looks fine. But at least now we know. But what actually happened is we managed to identify a few concussions that would not otherwise have been picked up. Okay. And yeah. so that alone is handy. And but, but more than that, it's that we managed to find, on average, just over one a game, players who were exposed to pretty significant head impacts who showed no clinical signs but at least we could put them on into the process now and i think that's a valuable first step so yeah it was it was useful yeah some of some funny things is we found because the way it works is that the signal gets measured obviously in the mouth guard all the engineering stuff then happens in the mouth guard which is quite remarkable it gets filtered and processed and then a bluetooth signal sends it to a receiver and then the match day doctor gets an alert if it exceeds certain amounts. So he's, he's, we, I've got a picture. It shows big red, like this, the whole iPad goes red. It says alert number 12 green or whatever. Okay. Sure. Um, there was one game that was played where the normal time between the impact and the alert is about three to five minutes because the Bluetooth signal has to connect with the app. And sometimes that's too far away because it's happening in the far corner, not close by, you know? Yeah, yeah. One game, like none of them happened until half time. They were like two or three. So, geez, what's going on here? Turns out that the LED advertising lights can interfere with a Bluetooth signal. Who knew? Oh. <laughs> and so what had happened was that the receiver was be like right behind the LED unit. And so the power source was blocking the signal. So, okay, next time just put the LED in front of the lights, not behind them. So you're not only—I mean—you're not talking about just medical stuff. There's engineers involved yeah, it's in the process crazy, as like, well. And so we're tr constantly trying to problem solve it and figure it out. And Do you know what it costs to produce one of those mouth guards? Uh, World, World Rugby's got an agreement. Can, can with, you say? <laughs> yeah, like I, I would say if I was knew I was I was right. Mm. I think it's in the range of two hundred to two hundred and fifty dollars. Okay. If they bought consumer direct. Um, mm. I know that as part of the mandating, World Rugby is paying for them, so they are paying either the company who we've got an agreement with who's got the tech in place to do it mm. or if another mouth guard company because it's by no means exclusive like we mm. want World Rugby wants as many mouth guard manufacturers as possible to come in because it drives the price down it means there's more options for players it's beneficial sure. right um, mm. so what we've said is that if a team wants to go with a different supplier then as long as that supplier meets the minimum standards technically and accuracy wise for measurement and can deliver the the service as an in-game measure, then World Rugby will pay for that also. So it's either a it's either a value in kind, here's the mouth guard to yeah. all players, or it's a cash amount. And I think the amount works out to a couple hundred dollars. Mm. I mean, I can, I can imagine that the, the the actual rollout of this could filter right down to sort of schoolboy level, where you know maybe mom and pops are taking 
little Johnny Wilkinson to the uh, game and they've got an app and he's wearing yeah. this and then if something happens, it pops up on the app that he's been injured. Yes. So it, it could prevent a lot of injuries at the lower level of the game once the yes, pass comes down. with some very important not fine print, big bold print coming. Mm. And and just on that, when, when we did that podcast announcing here that it was going to be mandated, I got a couple messages from people saying, where can we get it? Mm. So already like people made that That's connection straight, yeah. which is great. I like that. Yeah. And I know from our, we have a weekly meeting with people because you can imagine the undertaking now to because it takes a dental scan to get the fit perfect because the, the fit really matters. You can't get an off the shelf mouth guard, put a chip in it and say off I go because then the fit isn't tight enough. You get invalid. You get noise, not signal. Okay. Right. So, so the fit matters and so you need a dentist to do a scan in order to make that mouth guard. Then it takes a week or two to ma- sure. make it and send it back. There's a whole team of people going around the world now scanning professional rugby players teeth. It, it's like it is a massive undertaking. It's amazing it's what's happening. In, it's amazing what's happening, really. It's incredible. <laughs> it's so ambitious and it's really exciting. So be able to figure but out whether rugby players are more likely to have um, problems big, with their big teeth jaws, or not. Yeah, big, oh, big jaws. Big, big, big yeah. jaws. That's a, and that is actually one of the issues is you get like big heads and you say, okay, we're going to have to <laughs> accommodate these. <laughs> um, the, the big, bold, not fine print that I want to add is that if you, if you buy this expecting that it's going to tell you when an injury's happened, you're overreaching still, unfortunately, right? Because the the positive predictor value, even in our women's competition now, was about 40%. And what that means is that only 40%, two out of five mouth guard alerts end up being HIO1 removals. And then of those, only about half end up being concussions. So in actual fact, only one in five mouth guard alerts is a concussion. Mm. The other four and five are to, to be maybe inaccurately unkind, false positives. Yeah. Now, we don't think they're false positives because they're still true large head impacts and we want those to matter because it's not just about concussion. It's also about head impacts, right? Mm. So we're not worried about the positive predictive value as being a bad thing. We want, in actual fact, the reason to use the mouth guard is because the predictive value is low. If the if the mouth guard was merely confirming what your eyes already told you, you wouldn't need the mouth guard. Mm. <laughs> the problem is that our eyes are telling us that the player is fine when they might not be. So that's what the mouth guard is. It's an additive part. But you want it to pick up but, more than you need. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So you're not worried about it being perfectly diagnostic. We're not. Mm. I've written a paper now that's been submitted to British Journal of Sports Medicine, and it's currently under review. And I know that those reviewers are concerned about that, that, oh, you're promising diagnosis. I cannot stress enough. We are not worried about diagnosing them. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because that parent who is well-meaning and well-intentioned could be inviting false positives because Johnny or Susie is going to go play. They're mm-hmm. going to get a couple of significant head knocks. They're going to say, but maybe that's not a bad thing because it means they're being prudent and they're aware that there are significant head impacts. I yeah. would, if I'm a parent of a 14 year old boy or girl, I'd rather know that they haven't or have had significant head impacts, even if there's no direct clinical link yet yeah. between those. You know what I'm getting at? Yeah. So I, I would encourage people to learn more and think of it as knowledge is useful. Look, what I don't know is potentially bad. What I do mm. know could be bad, but if I'm wise about it, cool. But it's not yet ready for 
the mm. big lights of concussion diagnosis is the key. And point. I'd imagine also that they could roll out into other sports, whether there was any willingness so. to do it. And I can't imagine that boxing would do it because they might find that the results of it are so severe that it would be the end of the sport. <laughs> Never take a test you can't pass. Yeah, Never exactly. Yeah. You don't That's know. kind of when I think about boxing, yeah. as well. I think about why do the test because it might prove catastrophic for the sport in general. Yeah, and it might prove mm. that way for rugby. Like if I tell you now, mm. we, we had games in the women's XV across 30 players, 800 head acceleration events in the match mm. because the sport yeah. is just high volume, high exposure. Like that's mm. how it is. Mm. Now, we have to know that in order to communicate those risks to players. Yeah. But there are going to be people, and the more I'm in the space, the more I realize they're acting in bad faith most mm. of the time, not always, but a lot of the time, who go, look at this, untenable, unsurvivable, disaster waiting to happen. All head impacts are bad. People should never play rugby. Mm. Okay, well, that's your prerogative. but. I'd rather measure it and then communicate the yeah. risk than, than deny it. But yeah. I'm also not going to catastrophize it the way some people want us to. But yeah. you're right. Other sports need to do it. I fly to uh, New York next Tuesday for a meeting with all the other contact and collision sports. And we will present our philosophy around mouth guards as part of head injury management. And we'll see, we'll see what the appetite is. I know in American football, they, they would love it. But they've got them in the helmets. Mm. But you're um, saying the helmet's not as accurate as no, and, and to some extent they're playing a game of trade-offs there because they 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 don't think they'll get it in enough players' mouths, and so they've said, well, we can have a perfect measurement in the teeth on ten percent, or we can have an imperfect measurement on ninety-five percent. Which do we want? Does anybody own the patent for these uh, mouth cards? <laughs> no, I mean you can't. <laughs> Could be a good business. I think it's like you, it's like patenting a red car. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like you can't because yeah. it's a, and it's an accelerometer in the mm. in the mouth guard. Um, mm. There's definitely a front runner, and that's Prevent in Minnesota because they've figured out how to filter it on tooth, send the Bluetooth. So that's why we're going with them. But there are others yeah. who, by all means, can come in, hit the minimum standards, measure the right stuff, figure out a way to communicate it, and then go for it. <laughs> so I hope it drives, I do hope that it drives a competitive landscape because then that well meaning parent can buy one one day for $60, not $250. 100%. So also the news, lots of uh, talk around the transgender debate and uh, three particular stories, one in football, another one in snooker, and of course in cricket as well. Um, let's kick off with the one in football. That's an interesting one because, in fact, it's a, it's a, it's a whole bunch of um, team um, from a particular group. Um, just having a look at it quickly. Um, it was up in Sheffield. Sheffield, eh? there we go. And the U- U.S. saying that there was a player injured and therefore there's some teams that are refusing to play because they will not play against transgender athletes, which I guess is right. Yeah, it's Oliver Brown. He's a, he's a chief sports writer at The Telegraph. has been covering this for a few years, actually. He's one of the one of the early journalists who recognized this threat to women's sports. And he's been covering it and quite quite proactive, more... Even like Sean Ingle always does a really good job of it, but is more neutral. Oliver Brown is very much on the front foot swinging for the boundaries, right? And his article starts, at least four teams in a Sheffield's women's league are boycotting matches after club fielded a transgender player accused of causing a season-ending injury to an opponent. Mm. And I think there's a few things about it. It it revealed, it, it emerges in the article that there are about 50 players at the moment in England alone. And I'm always staggered by the number of these cases that are emerging. It's amazing. Like there's a mm-hmm. there's a Twitter account called iHeartBikes who basically every weekend publishes another picture of an athlete, cyclist, transgender, so a male winning a woman's event or taking a woman's podium place. <laughs> yes, it's incredible. It's impossible to keep up with now. Mm. There was a website called shewon.org 
which documents the names of all the women who didn't win because of males in their in their races. And oh, they stopped tracking it because it got mm-hmm. too much. And now I 50, used to think it was a small problem, but it is becoming... And that's the key. That's the first point, is that this was a year and a half ago rejected as a non-issue. There's one or two. What does it matter? Like, it's fine. This isn't going to be a major problem. Hang on a moment. Like, as the base prevalence of this issue goes up, it will happen more and more in sport. And if the theory is right, the trans woman by virtue of being biologically male and going through that male development, carry with them advantages, you will find over-representation of trans women in women's sport. And that is what is, it was, it was entirely predictable that this was going to happen. Yeah. So that's the first point. The second point is that two years ago, UK sport developed a policy around this. And that policy was very clear in that it recognized that you cannot balance fairness and inclusion at the same time. The inclusion of males in women's sport compromises fairness and safety for females. That was, that's IOC to that point and to this day still maintain that you can balance those imperatives. That's, that's false. That's a dream. It's, it's daydreaming. UK sport made that very clear. And that was the catalyst for sports in the UK, like rowing, like athletics, like rugby, even England rugby and Scotland and subsequently Wales. To, to come on board with World Rugby's policy at the time, which was to, to say no trans women in women's rugby. For some reason, football hasn't done it. And so now you've created the situation where the women are having to say, no, we won't play. Mm. And so now everyone's losing even more because now you can't even play the game because of this. And so the sports administrators and authorities have thoroughly failed because of their, whether it's cowardice or whether it's passivity, the inaction, and as a consequence, females are having to now boycott playing. And that's where this leads, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's lousy. I see a lot of tweets, actually. Martina Navratilova gets most upset about this on Twitter when people say, well, women should just not play. That's the solution. You say, well, yeah, it probably is. But it's like it's a, it's a solution to a problem. And the problem is that women have been failed. Yeah. Straight up. Yeah. That's all it is. Yeah. And well, now what are they going to do about this? Like... But you know what it really took? Like UK Cycling and the UCI, they reacted to powerful women who said no to the participation of Emily Bridges, also a trans woman in their, in their sport. Mm. In swimming in the US, it was, the, it was the, the, the pushback from those women swimmers who were affected by Thomas that compelled action. And so we will lurch from one case and crisis to the next until these sports authorities recognize that you can't play. <laughs> I was explaining hit the crocodile. Do you know this game? Yes. Yeah, you can't play hit the crocodile with sports policy. Yeah. And in the US, you call this whack-a-mole, by the way. Mm. It's like, mm. here's one, hack it, hit it, hit it. That's how we're going in sport. Like it's from one crisis mm. to the next because they just refuse to do a sound principle-based policy process. Mm. Unlike the ICC now, finally. Yeah, so so cricket's one that's done the same thing, and, and that that's interesting because you kind of think, well, is there a is there a male advantage in cricket? I suppose there is. I mean, the bowlers and massive, and I suppose the strength of the batsmen. So there must be a mm. significant. But one of the one of the interesting ones is in snooker, where yeah. the English Pool Association's twenty twenty three champion of champions game, a woman by the name of uh, Lynn Pinch is actually pulled out of that game because she was playing against Harriet Haynes, who was a transgender athlete. Mm-hmm. And you kind of think, well, is there male advantage in pool? I yeah, don't know so enough about two, pool to. So there's two there's two issues there. So so cricket. 
yeah, the, 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 sh- the shoulder joint is one of the most starkly different biological consequences of male development compared mm. to female. The ability to throw and hit is a male, like even the evolutionary biologists study throwing and hitting actions. Remember, that was what allowed hunting yeah. and therefore human survival. And it was the male shoulder that gets those advantages as a consequence of, of uh, male puberty and testosterone. And that's why the throwing world records are way, way, way larger than the 10 to 12% of running world records. Mm. And in cricket, the ability to bowl and to throw and to bat is massively different. Like you watch uh, women's cricket matches. Look how few sixes are hit and they move the boundaries in. Mm. The speed of the bowlers. Even even for spinners, there was a Sky Sports producer bemoaning the ICC's decision, saying where's the unfair advantage. But a guy like Shane Warne or uh, Mira Litterin or pick your spinner now, Zampa from the World Cup, took the most wickets of any spin bowler. The, the ability to generate revolution on the ball without compromising accuracy is a function of finger and wrist and arm strength. Okay. You know, you know what I mean? Like because, because you want to you apply revolutions without losing control. Mm. Same as hitting the ball far. Because you think but when it comes could, to spinning, male, men and women would be the same. No, because the men, you see, the men can impart greater revolutions with mm. the same degree of control bowling a faster ball than the woman. Because the woman could do it but they would be at the top end of their range and therefore would compromise control. It's the same as trying to hit. You could swing yourself off your feet and hit the ball 100 meters, but you'd connect one in 50 times. Yeah. Or you could hit it with control and connect 45 out of 50 times and hit it 85 meters. Yeah. So the little bit that you can back off massively improves accuracy. And so if you have, if you have a, I don't know what you're going to call it, like a, 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 a range and you can work at a lower point of that range, then you get accuracy. Mm. And so that's a massive difference between the, oh, between the players. Actually, yeah. Like so, so the the ability to exert force to the ball on the ball as a bowler. You look at the speed of. I mean, if you if you're not bowling 140 to 150 k an hour for men, you're you're medium pace. Correct. Now a lot of those guys could bowl 155, but they'd be spraying it all over the shop, yeah. down the leg side, short, full, wide. Mm. You know what I mean? Mm. So they back it off by 2% to get 50% more accuracy. The women mm. at that same speed are 125. They could go to 135, but then they compromise. So, mm. yeah, strength strength unlocks accuracy almost in a way, you know, yeah. through control. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because you don't, you don't associate spin bowling and slow bowling with necessarily being a, a, a male advantage scenario. Like but you watch, yes, you uh, watch, okay, Shane Warne, he's not bowling anymore, mm. but when he was, when he was playing. Mm. He's not alive he, anymore. Yeah. He, he was, there was so much work being done through the shoulder joint yeah. and over that left foot as the shoulder comes over to try and get the body over. There's, there's internal mm. rotation mm. at the mm. same time that there's the wrist movement mm. to impart the spin. I mean, mm. If you don't have some strength mm. advantage, you're not doing that. That's why can't I can't ima- imagine a guy like Mutai Mulitran, who was the skinniest. Yeah, they were like gangling but he was. Saying, can't imagine strength was a factor there. But you're... yeah, but it's it's a different kind <laughs> no, of strength. I know, you know what, what I'm getting saying. at. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. and that's yeah. 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 So yeah. so yeah, it makes a massive it makes a massive difference, and it's absolutely the right decision because the shoulder is profoundly different between male and female. And in the pool situation, it was yeah. interesting because they actually, in fact. They um they actually uh, pinches won the the the, um, the the society was going to be making the break, and then she apparently shook hands with Haynes and then walked towards the tournament official and apparently declared a forfeit, and then just kind of walked off. And so she actually arrived at the game, um, 
threw the coin to see who would break and then said, I'm forfeiting the match because of this scenario. So, yeah, so it's in a sense performative, which is yeah, incredibly, incredibly brave because she's obviously wanting to make a statement. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, but good, then again, good for her, but like, why do you put people in the situation where they're going to make that statement? But again, is there, it's a bit like lawn bowls. So, is there, a, <laughs> is there a maladvantage when it comes to games like pool and snooker and lawn bowls? I can think of those off the top so, of my head. And show jumping is another one. Yeah. So show jumping, no. And like, that's why show jumping is mixed yeah. already, right? Lawn bowls, I stand corrected, but I think at the Commonwealth Games, there are mixed events. There's, yes. there's, you could argue why there need to not be anything other than mixed events. Sorry, why there need to be anything other than mixed events. Mm. You could just there are men's and women's champions. Yeah. So yes. why are they? Like, yeah. you could possibly make a similar argument for shooting. I went back. I remember and looked at the Olympic shooting results for the last three Olympic Games, and they use the same equipment in the same facility, and the scores are overlapping. Right. To the point that you would some years get women champions and some men, but they'd have them separately. Like, I think you could make the case to mix shooting. Yeah. I don't know enough about pool. It would be real interesting, for instance, to know whether the best pool players tend to be taller than the average human or not, or have longer limbs, because I could see that that might be yeah. advantageous. Yeah, to reach across the table. But then again, longer levels potentially compromises accuracy. So maybe the yeah. trade-off of reach is, is canceled. I don't know enough about that. Mm. One thing that is interesting, this came up on Patreon, Ian raised it. He said, what's the scientific evidence that there's a difference between sexes in pool, like you have here? Um, I do I do think like on the break, the power in the break is quite a differentiated in pool. And I probably would imagine you'll find that the speed of the ball in men's pool is, is a little higher, 10 to 15% than in women, maybe more. Does that have implications? Does the ability to, again, it comes back to similar argument about cricket is where in your range are you? Are you functioning at 40 percent of your range or 35 might be that at 35 you can hit the ball with the same speeds gives you bigger options on backspin it's i don't know enough about pool to know but that might be a, there might yeah. be a male female difference yeah but the point i was making to ian about this and this this is where it leaves biology and it becomes more of a social thing and so i don't i don't particularly have a strong opinion on this but i'm going to paraphrase what i've heard when we held our world rugby consultation one of the speakers who came and presented on the philosophy of men's versus women's sports used chess as an example and said that it is absolutely correct and necessary that there should be a protected category for females in chess because chess has had decades worth of social barriers to female participation that will not be resolved and overcome if you mix them. And so there is a, there is a non-biological argument to say that having a sex the sex closed or a sex matters space for some activities is necessary even if there is no advantage. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so the argument goes... I was wondering where you're going with that because as immediately you said that, I'm thinking, well, surely there isn't male advantage there, but it's socially, almost sociological. Chess, earlier this year, Chess announced a policy like um, cricket, like rugby. like They've actually done that now. They've said, and it caused an outcry earlier this year. I think it was like June, July. I must find the article. But I think it's called the FIDE, the Federation. They said that there will from now on be mixed tournaments and there will be women's only tournaments in chess. And those women's only tournaments will not allow trans women into them because that is males in women's sports, activity, game, whatever. And mm. so they've taken the same approach. And the argument goes, and I forget the specific details, is that is that there are barriers to chess participation and therefore achievement that females have historically faced. 
And without the existence of a single sex category, they will probably not merge into the mixed world of chess at the same rate. Like the, the grandmaster lists and the masters lists, international masters lists for chess are so dominated by males that if you only looked at those, you would conclude that there's a massive male advantage. And it, it may not be biological. It's mm. probably, it might well be biological, by the way. Who knows about the brain? I mean, there's mysteries there that I don't mm. <laughs> purport mm. to know about. But the argument is that the male dominance of chess necessitates a female space. What you can do and what you should do, I think, is you should recognize that there are potentially very small biological differences. And so, therefore, where possible, we can mix but at the same time, to facilitate growth, opportunity, and exposure for females, you have to have women's only chess, and then it must be close to the female sex. Mm-hmm. The, other, the other sport where that works, I think, is darts. There's a woman called Fallon Sherrock who did really well and made the news as the first woman ever to make a quarterfinal at the World Darts Championships or something. I would imagine that there are very, very few top-level female darts players because the social environment is so heavily male-dominated that unless you allow females to have their space their safe space for that sport they won't come through i'd be interested to hear our listeners on that because there's a part of me that says well yeah it's a yeah it's it's not it's a sociophilosophical it's a bit like why some demographics don't necessarily enjoy different sports because they're not growing up with it Mm -hmm. it's 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 you know you could talk about india and it's cricket you know, history and the fact that they all grew up, some millions and millions of people grew up watching and loving mm. cricket, therefore there's they're, they're more impact. So how much of these things have an effect? If you grew up in Holland, for instance, where you're not exposed much to cricket, are you then given some sort of advantage because you don't have the same yeah. basis? I mean, I mean, it opens up a lot you of know what it, things. You know what it is? It's ba- it's basically affirmative action in, in, in yes, sporting competition, right? It's, it's saying controversial that, like, in itself. Yeah, but that's what it boils down to. Mm. I mean, you've got a young daughter. I've got two young nieces. One's too young even to be relevant to what I'm about to say, but the other one's not. She's she's now starting to enter into group activities, and she won't do them if it's not exclusively with her friends. Yeah. And so, therefore, I'm looking at this in my six-year-old niece and saying, you know what? Like, actually, I'm seeing other reasons why female girls should have girls' things that they can do because if they didn't have them, and if you forced them into a non-sexed world. I don't think they'd do it. Now, does that make my, does that make my sister mm. and her husband bigots? No. Because they've raised someone who doesn't want to mix with boys at the age of six or seven? I don't think so. So I, I can see why you would allow it, but I can also see, and for the interest of disclosure, can also see how this could very quickly become an excuse for bigotry. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. it, it almost allows you to double down on gender stereotypes a little bit. But at the same time, if I want more people, more females playing chess, more females playing snooker, you've got to encourage that. Do I segment. solve that problem by respecting the reality, mm. or do I just ignore the perception and say, "Tough, suck it up"? Yeah. Which one's going to cause the change? <laughs> it is. It's a good debate we've stumbled on there just by chance. And I'll tell yeah. you, if there was a World Spot It Championships, I don't know whether you've ever played Spot It, but Never my heard of it. but my six year old daughter would be the world champion because I've yet to beat her. Um, in that game so it's, uh, some minds and brains are particularly good at that anyway so moving on from the very controversial topic of transgender sports as it continues to evolve and more and more sports uh, adapt and uh, start instituting different policies in terms of transgender athletes we'll keep an eye on those sort of stories for you but now our main topic of the day <laughs> here's a cool fact 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. So, over the last few years, there are many people around the world, including South Africa, and we know where they live and work and where they do this particular pastime. There has been this huge trend towards the Wim Hof method. And for those of you that don't know about the Wim Hof method, Wim Hof is a 64-year-old, uh, well, he was they call him the Iceman because he's done lots of underwater swims and broken Guinness World Records for those sort of things. But he's established a method by breathing and meditation and cold water immersion, all those sort of things where... The idea is that the more cold water immersion you do, not only does it improve your cardiovascular system, but it also improves your mood and lots of other benefits. And it's been adopted by people all over the world. Um, in fact, there are many documentaries on it. Um, there's uh, a fair amount of people here in South Africa that do it. And uh, I'm sure there's millions of people all over the world that buy into this. But there's research now out which now shows that potentially the Wim Hof method not standing up to the research as much as uh, Wim Hof would like it to. <laughs> yeah, and it's in nature. It's actually a very prestigious journal to be published in, mm. like one of the, the top ones, which is surprising because I read this article and I was a little bit underwhelmed by it, to be honest. It seemed like the sort of thing that you could you could probably re replicate quite easily, but maybe the level of control is is high. Out of interest in a if you were writing an article in Nature about Wim Hof, you would describe him as Dutch extreme athlete and multiple world record holder. There we go. That's that's how he that's how he's labelled in this article yes. in Nature. Yes. So, well, he does have a he does a, have world records for swimming under the ice for a yeah. certain distance. I mean, the way they describe things. him, it's the same as you describe Killian Jornet. Yes, and they're not anything like the no. same. Well, yes. <laughs> So a little bit of academic uh, simplicity compromising mm. the message. Mm. But the article is called The Effectiveness of the Wim Hof Method on Cardiac Autonomic Function, Blood Pressure, Arterial Compliance, and Different Psychological Parameters by Sasha Kettlehut, who's based in Bern. And yeah, I think it's safe to say... Well, can, can you just break down what all those individual things mean? Because I think it's important yeah, to, yeah, we can for people to understand. I, I've got a fairly good idea. I know what cardiac... Uh, autonomic function is, but I'm not sure about the autonomic part. So maybe just break each of those bits down so we understand them. Yeah, sure thing. So what I was, what I was going to say though is for every single one of those, this article is an absolute dud. Mm. Like they would have <laughs> they would have started off saying, let's look at these five or six things and we're going to find that a group who does Wim Hof sees some differences. They find nothing. It is a complete complete like blank art. And when you say that, it means there is no <laughs> benefit shown by the Wim Hof method. Yeah, yeah, because you always, mm. whenever you do research, you're hoping to find something. Mm. And then you go at the end, there's that process where you start looking mm. for them. You say, different, different, different. Cool, what a cool message. I was hoping to leave this conclusion towards the end. I'd have to keep you I don't listening. want to bury the lead. I don't want to, because you, you said you said in the beginning they find challenges and shows no effect, didn't you? Yes. Well, I didn't say that shows the no conclusion effect. Away. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, let's go into the detail. <laughs> but so, so, so it's, it's a, Let's just call it a negative finding, yes. and we'll just and we'll unpack it over the course of the next one. Sorry, I, I didn't want to bury the lead, and so I, <laughs> now I've given the the plot twist away. Yeah. 
Just, just focus so on the, what cardiac autonomic yeah, function is. So the, the, the premise is, you know, like they set this article up, they say cardiovascular diseases are a major cause of morbidity and mortality, causing 32% of deaths. So that's kind of like, this is life or death. <laughs> it's always funny it's to important. me as, a, important. as an academic to read how it's framed and set up and stuff. You can see their, their paradigm. And they talk a little bit about different predictors of that cardiovascular death, like blood pressure. High blood pressure, hypertension is a significant predictor of cardiovascular risk and death. They introduce a concept relatively new to me, I'll be honest, um, which is called the peak wave velocity. So that's how quickly does the pulse move? Because if your arteries are quite stiff, the pulse moves faster than if your arteries are compliant and soft. And so if they're stiff, that's a risk factor because you're on the way to developing atherosclerosis. So they've got that's a risk factor. Similarly, we, we've discussed in the past with our guest Marco Altini. You might remember that. Mm -hmm. I think it was last year, probably. HRV. Or this year, I can't remember. It was either last year or this year. Your the balance between your sympathetic and your parasympathetic nervous system is is an important predictor of your overall cardiovascular nervous system health. Measured by heart you, rate variability. Yeah, yeah. different yeah. parameters yeah. of heart rate variability. Like they measure in this study something called the root mean squared and another one whose name I now forget. I'll find it shortly. So they've basically said, okay, this is cardiovascular risk. It has all these different predictive metrics, parameters. And if the Wim Hof method is working to reduce cardiovascular risk, as it claims, then if we measure these things before and after a period of Wim Hofing, <laughs> we should see a drop in blood pressure, a reduction in the peak wave velocity. Uh, you might see reductions in the parasympathetic nervous system accompanied by increased sympathetic. Sorry, just, reduction the other way around. Just make that clear so people understand yes. the difference between those two systems. Sympathetic, fight or flight, stress response. When you're exercising, when you're under stress, you get a sympathetic increase. Adrenaline, basically. Think yeah. adrenaline. Parasympathetic is it's is it's a, is the yin the yang to its yin, where you have a like they call it rest and digest. It's the resting state, the relaxed, calm state, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're if you're moving towards health, your parasympathetic system should be increasing, and your sympathetic system less active in response to stress. You know, it means you're less stressed. And then of course there's a whole bunch of different psychological scales that measure things like anxiety affect which is emotion positive emotion negative emotion and so they have a probably six or seven of these different uh parameters that they then assess either side of the Wim Hof method and their rationale is pretty much as per the method um it it con contains cold exposure breathing exercises and mindfulness and it is claimed to have a range of benefits including improved mood reduced stress and anxiety, enhanced immune function, improved cardiovascular function, and increased energy and vitality, however, with limited scientific evidence. I'm reading from the paper now. Yeah. So does this set up the, the research question well enough well, in your mind? Yes, because I'm still waiting for you to get onto the explanation of what the research question is in terms of autonomic function, arterial compliance, those sort of things. What are, do, they, do they relate to what you've just said? Yes. So in this study... I'm reading them because you always, if you want to know, you always, if you want to find the aim and the objective of a study, the last paragraph of the introduction, if it's been written classically. Okay. <laughs> In this study, we aim to evaluate the effects of a 15-day Wim Hof method intervention on different cardiovascular parameters at rest and during a standardized test stress test, as well as on various psychological parameters to understand the Wim Hof's potential benefits and limitations. So... 
we can't measure cardiovascular health and risk because we're not going to follow people for 50 years and wait to see who dies when. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. So what we're going to do is in a very short time, 15 days, we're going to measure the stuff that we think predicts cardiovascular risk, like blood pressure, like this peak wave velocity, like sympathetic nervous system activity, heart rate variability, etc., and emotional factors. And we're going to ask whether a group of people who do the Wim Hof method for 15 days differs and gets better compared to a group that does nothing for 15 days. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. So it's a pre-post design in which they randomize in parallel arms with a control and an intervention group. And what's important is according to the Wim Hof method, and there are references in the story, positive changes of the WHM Wim Hof method should already manifest mm. themselves in 10 days. So they've Correct. given, that's what they're claiming, and they're doing 15 days. So they're yes, giving themselves so a little bit more time. And so, Wim, because the very first thing when I saw this study is how long did they do it for? 15 yeah. days. I'm thinking, is that enough? Like maybe someone's going to tell me I need three months. Mm. But then you see that Vim reckons 10. They say, Vim says 10. No, Vim probably regrets saying 10. (laughs) But Vim had to say 10 because no one commits to three months. But you can sell a 10-day intervention. You will see results in 10 days. Oh, I'll try. You will see results in 90 days. Jeez, that's a a big investment. Yeah. Yeah. So in actual fact, I I suspect it'd be interesting to know, like in in the marketing team of the Wim Hof method, they're probably going, oh, man. Why? We should have made it we three. Sh- we shouldn't have said 10. <laughs> we should have said three weeks. But then you see, then, like I say, they'd lose people because, yeah. and, and it, you know what reading this reminded me a lot of was barefoot running. Mm. Because barefoot running was also sold as do it and you will feel really fast results. You'll see results straight away. And that's not true. You, you probably needed to be really disciplined and stick with it. Lower your training volumes. Be, be really, really precise about doing it for three months before you even thought you know, you don't stick the cake in the oven and check in on it every few minutes. You leave it there for a long time. And I, so, so the next study that needs to be done clearly needs to do more than 15 days. But yeah. they did 15 days because it's 50% more than Vim himself said wouldn't need. Correct. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. yeah. So that's what they do. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so let's go. Let's go back to those parameters then that we discussed. That what what very briefly is the first one they talked about um, and. It, Autonomic function is that that's, the that's the heart that's rate the variability heart stuff. Okay. Yeah, so words, autonomic like, nervous system function, stress, sympathetic. How good, the heart is beating. Relaxation. Right. Yeah, and remember HRV, that heart rate variability is the variation from one beat to the next. So it's not necessarily mm. heart rate. That's that's one part of it. But heart rate variability is kind of mm. like the thing underneath the heart rate. The, yeah, it tells you a little bit about the pattern that's creating the heart rate. How, where's that coming from? So they use a polar CX heart rate monitor, which many of you listening to this probably have. And they measure that. It's exactly the same tool that Marco spoke about. It's the same thing we all have access to these days, amazingly enough, thanks to tech. Mm. And they basically measure it for five minutes at rest, pre and post. And then they also measure it in response to this thing we'll get to in a moment, which is like a stress test. Because Mm. it's one thing to measure it at rest. But then what you really want to see is, okay, let's apply stress. And if you've really gotten benefit from the Wim Hof, your response to that stress will be better than someone who's not done the Wim Hof. That's the, that's the yeah. hypothesis that they were testing there. Arterial compliance. I'm assuming that's got something to do with arteries. Yeah, that's the bit about that peak wave velocity where right. the, the speed with which that pulse wave moves is Surely an indication that won't change of the in 15 days. I can't. Yeah, so this is where this is where like this is, if I'm Wim Hof's marketing team, I'm saying like, yeah, we said 10 days, but geez, we didn't say that would change. Yeah. 
you've come along and you've said, what can we measure? And we, we're not claiming that. But it's a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So effectively, they're just trying to answer whether this risk factor is modifiable within 15 days, thanks to that. But I agree. Yeah. I I would, that if, if I was reviewing this, I'd say I'm not sure there'd be a basis to think that that would be changeable that early. You know, if and I'll read to you from the, from the section where they talk about that. Uh, pulse wave velocity um, is an indicator of arterial stiffness, offering a reliable and non-invasive tool to identify subclinical atherosclerosis and enhance risk assessment for cardiovascular diseases. Now, again, two weeks, nothing in medicine works that fast. <laughs> no. Okay, maybe some things show early signs. Yeah. If you're a chronic smoker it's, it's and you not, stop smoking, just... two weeks later you look different. But yeah. but this felt a little bit a little bit ambitious. Let's call it. Yes. Yeah. 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 So it seems it seems a little bit unfair that they would measure something that would probably only change over time. Possibly, in that yeah. Respect, if, yeah. If, you know, if it's stiff because of atherosclerosis, I mean, you've got to reverse a plaque. Mm. That's not that's not easy, especially if it's the only thing you're doing. You know, I could mm. see I could see a drastic diet shift, maybe doing it quickly. Mm. Maybe exercise does it real quickly. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have been surprised to find no difference there. Some of the others maybe, but not that one. Now, the interesting question, of course, is that we talked about the physiological effects in the cardiovascular system, and there's no change there. But mm. one of the things they talk about is the subjective vitality scale, which is a psychological measure used to assess an individual's sense of energy and aliveness. Now, I think people that follow the Wim Hof method, that, that's the one thing that they will say about this method that is what is the key differentiator that mm. they finish the session in meditation and breathing and we know that things like meditation do work yeah um and then they come out of the cold pool or the cold tidal pool wherever they're doing the bits and pieces they've ordered their their um, smashed Avron toast and their flat white <laughs> and they feel absolutely amazing and they've got this this sense of vitality and and energy um which i guess is placebo effect really isn't it maybe not I mean, is exercise a placebo effect if well, it gets yes. endorphins flowing and you like yeah. you, you literally have that benefit, right? Like you go for a really lovely bike ride in the morning, like some of us did this morning. Yes. And uh, you get home and you feel you feel uh, jump started. Yes. And that's not placebo. That's because I've literally induced through exercise. So, okay, now that's exercise. What I'm suggesting is that it's quite possible that that cold water immersion does the same thing for you. Yes. You, know, you feel literally refreshed sometimes to the point of frozen but that's if you've chosen to do it and it's something you derive pleasure from i don't know that it's just placebo i'm sure that they're probably neurotransmitter brain related changes i've got no doubt that your blood pressure in that acute moment will be better you'll feel flushed you'll feel warm and once you get <laughs> once you get warm of course so that so like that's where that's where the study design because what you see, what they do is not a cold water swim in a lovely beach location with a nice breakfast afterwards. They're doing shower at home in your own time under cold water. Yeah. Do breathing exercises in your own time. You know, because that's how, I suppose one could argue in their defense, that's how the Wim Hof method is being sold and used by a lot of people. So in a sense, they're doing a, a real world, valid, reliable study. But it is, it, it isn't... I dare say the way a lot of users of cold water immersion slash meditation slash breathing would normally engage with it because they will make it part of an experience that actually probably is more valuable than the, the thing. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, and, and actually, they sort of hint at it. There's one line in the paper that's real interesting where they say, 
in the limitations is, is we didn't really control for things like whether the oh, sorry previous studies wouldn't have controlled like a cold water immersion or swim. There's a swim there, so there's actually physical activity. Physical, it's not just yeah. sitting under a cold shower. Is that part of where the benefit needs to come from? That's not known. But the the point I'm trying to make is that the, the look the conclusion is the conclusion, and it's going to show that there's no differences. But I wouldn't be so quick to say like this is a waste of my time because if you find value in it and you like it and it makes you happy, for sure, then it's probably Good. beneficial. Yeah, even if a study in nature couldn't find that benefit, and there weren't not just the vitality one. You're talking about the SVS. They've got a perceived stress scale, which is used to evaluate stress from uh, it's a ten ten questions, ten items rated on a five point scale, and then there's a affect scale, positive and negative, both of which are validated. So they're they're trying to throw a bunch of these psychological anxiety and emotional things at it, and they don't find anything. But again, I would suggest that the people who make the choice to do that themselves probably do find benefit, and that's different from a study. Yeah, I mean, those that support it, and we know a couple of them ourselves that go and do it, and they will rave about the benefits of that. And it might be the placebo effect. It might be the endorphins they get from being in the cold water. Who knows? And they say the reverse as well, right? They'll Mm. say, I didn't go this morning because I had an early meeting or I had to do the school run, and I just feel so, like, miserable that I didn't get my start. Yeah. You know? Which is the same thing I say if I don't get my bike ride in. Mm. Mm. So you're going to tell me it's placebo, or is it maybe... Mm. Maybe sometimes perception is reality yeah. when it comes to yeah, this physiology. Perfect. Anyway, so that's the evidence um, for those of you doing the Wim Hof method and getting into those cold water pools. But uh, it's not looking good in terms of evidence. But as uh, yeah. Ross has just said, I Look, think it's important to remember that if it works for you, don't stop doing it, of course. Yeah, exactly. So so, so the paper ends up concluding, like we were saying, mm. is no difference between the control group and the... Now, so, like many limitations... How do you control for things like vitality? The, any idea? No, because like, especially when you've got 20 people for 15 days. Yes, because how do you control somebody who's not done the Wim Hof method and how they feel versus somebody that has? Yeah. I and, mean, I don't understand and, how and they the con- done And that. the other thing I was intrigued by is that the control arm in this study, they have, t- they have 42 in total people who apply to advertisements. So presumably all 42 want to do the Wim Hof because it's advertised as come do the Wim Hof and we're going to study you. Half of them don't get to do it. They just get told, carry on, as you were. <laughs> 20, 20 of them. 22 do the Wim Hof, one drops out with illness. So they're left with 21 who finished the course, as it were, the 15 days. So those 21 have gotten what they came for. The others didn't. But what's interesting is that they don't, they don't give the others something else to do, like a fake Wim Hof. <laughs> yes. Now what, yes, so this is like what you need fa- there. Because if you were studying a headache Maybe tablet, they were in warm water as opposed to cold water. Or something, like or, or, or 15 minutes of exercise a day listening to something, mm. a, a, a humpback whale track or something. I don't know. <laughs> but like, because not, look, if you were studying yes. medication design to improve cardiovascular health through reducing blood pressure or peak wave velocity, you would give one group the experimental drug and the other group would get an identical placebo. There's no placebo here. No. Now, if they'd found that the Wim Hof method worked compared to the control, they would have been in a bind because they didn't have a placebo. Because then they would have found that of the 42 people who applied, 21 got what they wanted, the Wim Hof method, and they got better. The other 20 didn't get what they wanted and they didn't get better or they got worse. And we don't know whether that's just because they didn't get what they wanted and they mm-hmm. were like, you know, you know what I mean? So, yeah. so they're actually 
in a way, a little bit lucky that they found no difference because if they'd found a difference, they wouldn't have been able to explain it because they didn't set up the control arm. So, and I think it's so important to say there's no difference as opposed to a negative difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not like anyone yes. got worse. Nobody's when saying you look, worse, yeah. Right, and when you look at the study... I'm not saying it's bad for you. Yeah, so you look at this, the heart rate, the heart rate variability. It's, the other one was SDNN, by the way. The systolic, the diastolic blood pressure, the PWV. Like, they've got this table, table two. Like, they are the same, exactly the same, before and after, before and after, in both groups. So they've got no finding <laughs> at all. If they'd had a finding, they would have had a much more difficult paper to write. I dare say this paper with a finding would not have been in nature because mm. they didn't have a control group. The fact that they got no difference without a control group suggests there's really no effect of what they did. But then you go to the limitations and you say, okay, they don't supervise the cold water shower. So first of all, it's not an immersion, it's a shower. Okay. Now, we know from cold water physiology that a full body immersion causes a larger physical response than a cold water shower. So when you when you when you jump into cold water or you shower in cold water, you get a you get a breathing response that's called the cold shock response. It's not mm -hmm. just breathing, but one of the indicators is hyperventilation. Mm -hmm. The degree to which you hyperventilate is much larger when you go neck down than when you go in a shower. It makes sense, I guess. Mm -hmm. So they do a shower, not a full body immersion. And they don't supervise that shower to know that the temperature of the water was 10 degrees Celsius. All they tell the participants is make it as cold as you possibly can. So it might not be that the, the stimuli of the cold water exposure was large enough. Similarly, with the meditation and breathing, there's a degree of trust that they've had to believe that the participants are doing what they're doing. If you have even 50% non-compliance, then it means that half your experimental group are doing the same thing as your control group, nothing. <laughs> That's a major problem. So, so I don't, I don't know that the, and I mean, I know that now, listen, I'm not, I'm not an advocate of Wim Hof method at all. I just don't know that this is the nail in the coffin. You see, the intervention comprised of three components, cold yeah. water exposure, which mm. you say is the shower, shower, yeah, and breathing exercise yeah. and meditation. Those are the three methods according to the Hoff method. Yeah, and there's a little description mm. of each one in the paper. You can yeah. read it if you want a really short pricey of what Wim Hof is about. Mm. Yeah. Unsupervised. And yeah. so, so over 15 days, what's the compliance? And like I say, because the control group was doing nothing, there's a real chance that a lot of the experimental group and the control group are doing the same thing, i.e. nothing. And then when you find no difference before and after, I, yeah, I don't know. Like, I mean, mm. I would, I would, if I, if I was to do this study in Cape Town, I would supervise the cold water immersion well, that's what the, at the beach. Yes. I mean, you're saying coldest possible temperature. I mean, that's also, again, a variable that could change a huge you know, one amount. One guy might be 18 degrees and the other one might be 13. Yeah. I mean, there's a big difference between 13 degrees in the sea and 18. Big time. Yeah. And, big but time. both are cold. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's an interesting one because, like, it's in some respects a very solid study. Mm. But in other respects, There's a lot of work not. to be done. Yeah. And so a 30-day five days a week so that would be 20 days worth let's say it's a month-long intervention five days a week we're down at the beach doing the cold water immersion but then you also what's the what's the maybe the other group needs to do cold showers and one group needs to do cold water immersion that's what i'd do next the and neither group, group needs to know what the actual experiment is and about that's the, and that's the big challenge because like most so. people will respond to an advert on vim hof because they know what vim hof is yeah so you can't deceive them Mm. So, so you'd have to give them some other breathing exercise, some other meditation to do, you know, like uh, listening to Enya, 
Um, <laughs> it's a blast from the past. Or, uh, Pretty close to that whale sound. <laughs> so I was just thinking that one South Park episode. If you know, you know. Um, and then the, the breathing as well. Like it's 30 to 40 breaths in a couch in a quiet environment. Did they do uh, anyway? You get the you get the yeah. vibe. Like, and this is for listeners. Like, this is the fun of academia. It's like you put yeah. a study out there, and then people take take uh, take a look at it with a critical eye, and they say, "What about this? What about that?" And mm. this would have had that in the review process. You know, I'm I'm surprised. They I mean, didn't we talk managed about to do it. We started this podcast talking about this thing being quite a bad study in terms of the results for Wim Hof method, but by <laughs> the end of it, we've questioned a lot of the processes here, haven't we? I yeah, mean, yeah, it, yeah it, exactly. Just give an example of what they're up against. But it's, it also shows you how hard the study would be to do because oh, yeah. what is the control? How do you control for the Wim Hof method? Yeah. What's the placebo? But you'd have to ha- you well, have to have that for it to have real credibility, which this doesn't necessarily. Yeah, and you've got a, you've, you've picked apart one of the outcomes is that mm-hmm. peak wave velocity. Why should it be different? What would you do differently then in that situ- situation? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, but it is. Yeah, this is always the challenge with these kind of studies, you know. Like, and and you need sixty people per group, not twenty. But now you've got a major administrative problem running a study of one hundred and twenty people. If compliance was hard with forty-two, what's it like with three times as many? And blah blah blah. And so it just it shows you like actually how hard research is to do well. I think they should do a study on the people that go down to the tidal pool here in Cape Town and Colt Bay, and figure out whether there are there are less issues around cardiovascular health and Going i'd imagine to, around the world there will be less because well, the yeah. person who can afford to drive to cork bay yes that's true in the morning is probably a wealthier person and the best protection against disease and death is money yes but then there are also population groups and i don't i can't think of one offhand but i imagine places like the nordic countries there might be a much bigger population group that do cold water immersion swimming yeah therefore <laughs> they also have could more we money some, they also have, <laughs> yeah again yeah see it's hard it like, is that's difficult because yeah. what, what you're suggesting is confounded by other factors and like the one thing this study would, would in theory control for is that by randomizing them you mm. in theory don't have that mm. that issue it's a bit like the blue zones in terms yeah, of people are yeah, living older there are studies mm. you know places like Sardinia where there are lifestyle factors yeah. and food and that's the thing that effectively affect longevity um, and you can look at that group and say well what are they doing that's giving them a higher than average longevity over the rest of the population and you can pin it down to some and there's been lots of television programs about that mm. in itself um, but again, there's probably not enough people doing cold water immersion to give us that. The other, the other thing you could do is you could like do an advert for for uh, I don't know cold water immersion and sauna. Yes, and you can say we're going to compare and contrast, and and then you no. ask the person what they want, and then half of them you give what they want, and half of them you give what they don't want. Yeah. So the people who say I'd rather do cold water immersion, you say half of you are doing sauna and half of you are doing a cold water immersion. They go, oh my god, no, because then at least you get rid of the fact that they want to be there. Mm. <laughs> And you say, okay, you didn't want to be here, but look, you still got better. Then, yeah. okay, then it's physiological finding. Starting to get some, yeah, <laughs> so you yeah. can try that. And maybe you need a third arm that just does like regular exercise. They're all inactive people and do regular exercise. I bet you that exercise will outperform the other two. Yeah, so next week we've got an interesting discussion around the benefits of running over walking and whether it is better or worse. And we'll get into that because you've led into that quite nasty. That's an interesting study, which we'll get into a little bit next week. Um, but uh, for those of you doing Wim Hof Method, we encourage you to keep going. There's still some research to be done. If it works for you, as we've said, keep doing it. If it makes you feel good, why not keep doing it? Uh, but uh, for us, we felt pretty good doing the podcast today and we're going to leave it until the next time. Goodbye. 
Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.